0: Good morning, I, think I know most people, but my name is David Freeze, I've been around LifePoint since day one, and from time to time, dope gives me the privilege of uh, coming and sharing, and so I appreciate that very much. Once again, though, I've shown up with no outline, um, so I'm sorry for making it tough on the note takers, I take notes and I appreciate it. Uh, outlines. I think one of the callings of a, you know, one of the marks of a person truly called to preach the word is the ability to make really nice outlines, preferably with alliterative points. But I don't have that gift. So uh, today, though, I think there's really just one point, so it should be easy. It's a tough point, but just one point. So in times past, there was a young man who wanted to serve the Lord uh, by joining a monastery. So he located a monastery, goes there for his interview, and they say, well, among other vows you'll have to take, one is a vow of silence. And you'll be able to say only two words a year, and those words will be at your annual review each year. The young man agrees. He joins the monastery and launches into his first year. And so at the end of the first year, he comes to his annual review, and an older monk says, well, what do you have to say for your first year? The young monk says, food, cold. (laughs) So, okay, he launches into his second year, doesn't speak, makes it through the second year, comes to his review, (coughs) and the older monk again asks, well, what do you have to say for your second year? The young monk says, bed, hard. Okay? So he launches into his third year. Again, he doesn't speak. Gets to the end of the third year, comes for his review, and the older monk says, what do you have to say for your third year? And the young monk says, I quit. <laughs> well, the older monk says, you know, your decision doesn't, doesn't take us by surprise because you've done nothing, nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> um, you know, it, it might be a good thing if we could actually limit our complaining to two words per year. Unfortunately, that's not usually the case. So for this young monk, complaining consumed 100% of his spoken words. It's a funny story, but it tells tells us that this young monk's heart was clearly consumed with complaining. And it wasn't about the words he spoke, it was about the heart. So I want to think today about the question, why do Christians complain? We know why the world complains, so we're not talking about the world, we're talking about the family of faith. Why do we complain? So when I do a Bible study on a topic like this or any topic, I always, you know, begin by looking up the word, just doing a simple word study and seeing how it's used in the Bible. And so the word complain, complaint, complaining, it's used 26 times in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament because it's the biggest book, I guess. Um, There's a related word which means pretty much the same thing. It's grumble. The word grumble is used 29 times in the Bible. And no surprise, these words are never used in a positive way. So the Greek word for complain, it means one who is discontent with his lot in life. A Merriam-Webster definition of the English word is something like this. To express dissatisfaction or annoyance about a state of affairs or an event. And some synonyms for complaining are grumble, whine, carp, bellyache, gripe. Others, and we'll stop there. So what can we say? Complaining is giving expression to our self-centered discontent. There's just nothing good to say about complaining. So while studying for this, um, after I prepared my notes, really, I read a couple of sermons on complaining by a fairly prominent pastor, and he was preaching from Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In his first sermon in this series, he spent most of the sermon... It was based on a radio talk he had heard by a sociologist... Who made the case that the generation of young people at that time... This was in 1989, so not ancient history... That young people were... Those young people were the most self-centered, self-indulgent, privileged... Entitled generation of all time, and the biggest complainers and grumblers. So while I have great respect for that, that particular preacher... I'm not sure that this assessment of a whole generation is correct, at least in characterizing that generation as uniquely prone to complaining. I'm not giving any generation a pass. I don't believe that any generation is free of a complaining spirit. And sometimes I hear people idealize Christians in other countries, pointing out that they don't have the facilities that we have, uh, but they're content. So we should learn from them, basically making the case that we should not complain about our first world problems. Well, there's truth in that. But over the years, since at least 1992, I've spent a lot of time in other countries where Christians live in far humbler circumstances than we do here. And really, deep, long-lasting friendships have developed with folks from those countries. And, you know, as you get to know people beyond a superficial uh, level, you discover complaining is universal. Complaining is not a cultural thing. It's not a generational thing. Complaining is a spiritual thing. And it goes back to the beginning of time, literally. Adam, the first man to walk the earth, one day he goes to sleep. The next day he wakes up and he's not alone. And he's married to the only other person on the planet. I mean, imagine that. It's a huge gift from God. I mean, his, his world changed. So we know the story. God gives them, Adam and Eve, everything, literally a whole planet, on which to live and says just one thing there's one tree don't eat the fruit from that tree well and Eve getting too close to that tree is captured by the words of the devil he convinces Eve that God is withholding something precious from her the devil convinces her that if she eats the fruit of that tree she'll be like God and that God doesn't want that for her well it was a lie but the devil had sown the seed of discontent in Eve's heart and she wanted more she ate the fruit And we read then in Genesis 3.12, the man, Adam, said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the the tree, and I ate. So Adam doesn't really blame Eve for this. If he were going to blame Eve, he would have said, The woman gave me from the tree, and I ate. But he doesn't. He blames God. He says, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me a tree, and I ate. And You can almost hear that in sort of a whining tone. So complaining's been around from the beginning. To some degree, it's in every heart. And God hates complaining. He hates grumbling. 1 Corinthians ten eleven says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So here Paul is exactly talking about the Israelites who have left Egypt, So the Old Testament is an incredible part of the Bible. It's amazing. There's so much there to learn. And the New Testament says these things are written for our example, not just random, interesting stories. So we're supposed to learn from them. So, you know, just to recap the story. The Israelites were delivered from enslavement in Egypt when God, by bringing the ten plagues on that country, brought down, arguably the most powerful nation on the earth in that day, and the most powerful leader, the Pharaoh, of that day. Ultimately, the Egyptians were practically begging the Israelites to leave, even giving them lots of gold and jewels and treasures just to entice them to move on before their country was completely destroyed. So they left, as we know, and they came to the Red Sea. It was blocking their way, and behind them, Pharaoh changed his mind. Behind them, the Egyptian army. So they're between an army and a sea. And as we know, God parts the sea, and they pass through on dry land. And then behind them, the sea closes, destroying the Egyptian army. So they witnessed things that make the overused word miracle seem not a strong enough word to even describe what they saw. And, you know, this was such a stunning event, this passing through the Red Sea, that they stopped on the other side of the sea, and they sang this famous song. It's called the Song of the Sea. It's the 15th chapter of Exodus, but I just want to read what they were thinking, what they were saying, what was in their hearts at that moment. Words like this, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling the sanctuary, O oh Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. That's what was in the hearts of the Israelites as they passed, this, passed through the sea and saw the Egyptian army annihilated behind them. Beautiful words from a grateful people. Surely a people who would never doubt the love of their God. Well, from there they moved on. They walked three days, but they couldn't find water. Finally, they came to a place with water. But it was bitter and they couldn't drink it. This is just 72 hours after they've seen the parting of the Red Sea. And just several days after these incredible miracles. Well, surely, wouldn't we think they would just lift their eyes and their hands and say, we trust you? We know that you'll provide water, Yahweh. But that's not the story. Exodus 15, 24 says, So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? They complained. This is just three days after witnessing one of the most incredible miracles ever witnessed by man. So what's up with the hearts of this people? Well, that was just the beginning. They're just three days out of Egypt at this point. But God heard them and provided for them. Miraculously, he purified the water at that place, and they had all the water they wanted or needed. And they moved on. Surely, right, with hearts full of contentment and unwavering trust... And a God who has shown his unlimited love for them. Well, six weeks later, they're still moving toward Mount Sinai. Remember, this is about two million people moving through the desert. If you see some of the pictures of the migrants coming up through Mexico toward the United States, there's about 10,000 of them. So if you look at those pictures and multiply that times 200, that's what this crowd looks like moving through the desert. Uh, And God is taking care of them. So Exodus sixteen one through four, I want to read this to you. It says this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they'd approached the presence what? Exodus sixteen one. I'm in Leviticus. Did that sound did that sound wrong? Okay, here we go. Exodus 16, 1 through 4. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. And later in that chapter, Moses lets them on A really important truth, a very serious truth. It's in verse eight. This is Exodus sixteen, verse eight, says this. Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. So If they didn't understand or know this truth before, Moses is making it very clear to them. And he's making it very clear to who else? To us, because this is written for us. So it's very interesting. Here we see God's love, his grace, his faithfulness, his long-suffering patience with his people. Even with manna from heaven, they continued to grumble because they wanted more. They wanted meat. In Exodus 16, 12, the Lord says, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, "At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God." So God never ceased to demonstrate not only His desire to provide for His people, but his absolute ability to do so. And this is one of the great, great lessons about our God. He's sovereign. that means he is in complete control of everything. He's omnipotent, it means he can do anything. He not only has a desire to do things, but he can do those things. And he's omnibenevolent, meaning he is all love, so his actions are motivated by love. So with these Israelites, in spite of their grumblings against Moses, which is in reality a grumbling against God, he hears their grumblings and he takes care of them. You'd logically think then that they would be completely trusting, completely reliant on him, and completely satisfied in the knowledge that the creator of the universe cares for them. You'd think that would end all the grumbling. Then we come to Exodus chapter 17. They're continuing their, their journey to Mount Sinai. You know, they're just a few months out of Egypt. They've seen amazing signs, wonders, miracles. And the evidence of a God who loves them is committed to taking care of them. But Exodus 17:1 through 7 says this. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, encamped camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, He named the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I mean, can you you imagine that? So once again, apparently not remembering at all anything that just happened, they doubted that God would provide for them. They grumbled, they complained, and God heard them and provided for them. Did it change their hearts? Was complaining forever wiped out of their hearts? Well, the rest of the book of Exodus, the people finally arrive at Mount Sinai, and there they have a very up-close and personal encounter with God. They hear God speak. They see his presence covering the mountain. So if there were any doubts about his presence and his realness among them and why they should trust him, wouldn't that have removed all doubt? Well, then we come to the book of Numbers. They've left Mount Sinai, and they have about an 11-day walk to the promised land. They're almost home. Numbers 13, it's the famous story of the 12 spies who go into Canaan. They come back with two reports, right? The minority report by Joshua and Caleb is that it's an incredible land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, everything they could possibly want and need is in that land, and God will give it to them. The majority report by the other 10 spies is the land is full of giants. Cities, walled cities, and armies that were unable to defeat were doomed, so in this negative report resulted in widespread grumbling and complaining. Numbers fourteen one through 4 says this. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. And this is, you know, Something we should really recognize here is that we need to be careful about what we say um, to an omnipresent, omnipotent God because they're going to get exactly what they ask for here. Verse 3 says, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And at this point, God is fed up with it. The fact is, God hates grumbling and complaining. He's long-suffering and patient, but at some point, his anger and wrath pour out. Numbers 14, 27 through 29 says this, and this is God speaking. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. The result was that a short walking trip of 11 days turned into a twisting, turning, wandering journey that took about 38 years, until that generation of grumbling, complaining, unfaithful people perished in the desert. So what an object lesson. Surely you would think there would never be a grumbling, complaining heart among this people again. Unfortunately, even that didn't solve the problem. Number 16 again shows the congregation grumbling and complaining against Moses and Aaron, basically blaming them for their circumstances of being stranded in the desert. And keep in mind, this is while they have the visible presence of God among them. the pillar of day, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. This is after they've seen God. Himself at Mount Sinai, his presence. The Lord tells Moses when they complain in Numbers 16, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron, move away from the congregation. And the Lord begins killing those in the congregation who are grumbling and complaining. Moses prayed for the people, interceded for the people like he always does, and the Lord stopped. But by the time he had stopped, nearly 15,000 people had perished. So the complaining heart is powerful. It's hard to overcome, and it's been in every generation, every culture, because it's a spiritual condition. And it's one that God hates. So remember, all of this story that the Bible relates to us about the Israelites is written for what? It's written for our instruction. There's one more verse I want to read in the Old Testament <laughs> that really puts complaining in its place, in the context it belongs. It's Lamentations 3.39. It says this, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sin. The message translation of the Bible puts it like this. And why would anyone gifted with life complain when punished for sin? Basically it's saying that when we consider our fallen state. Exactly where we are in relation to God because of our sin. Then on what grounds are we ever, are we, are we ever going to have a right to complain? So that's what the Bible tells us about complaining. What? It's bad? It's bad? God hates it, and we shouldn't do it. Very simple. Well, that being said, why do we do it? What causes us to do this? I don't think any one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ wakes up on any given day and says, I know that God hates complaining, but that's exactly what I'm going to do today. I don't really care what he thinks. I mean, that would be insane thing to actually say, much less think. So why do we do it? I think it basically happens when we put ourselves at the center of our universe. We're more concerned with what I want, how I feel, with myself than we are with remembering of what a loving, gracious Savior has done for me. And really, I think that's the root of it. You know, we can especially at this time of year take the opportunity to think about or rethink about what Jesus did. We don't think of Philippians 2, 5 through 16 as a Christmas story, but I think it's, Kind of the backstory of Christmas, so it's it's a lengthy passage, but I want to read it. The words are beautiful. So this is Philippians two, five through sixteen. It says this have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond and being made in the likeness of men. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, run or toil in vain. So, you know, it's it's significant that Paul tells these Philippians and us to do all things without grumbling. Paul knew the Old Testament. He knew that grumbling against circumstances, against life, against others, against leaders is a grumbling against God. Uh, The very God who emptied himself of all his glory to come into this world with the sole purpose of dying on a cross to save a world of sinners. And a little side note. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from a prison in Rome. So we have our idea of what a prison is like, maybe from TV. Some of us minister in prisons, so we have a better idea. You know, prisons are not by any means wonderful places to be, You have a small cell, a toilet, a sink, a bed, a few possessions. One of my best friends is with the Dallas PD, and he was telling me just two days ago about an arrest that he made. And the one being arrested said, I'm fine with it. I have three meals a day, a bed, and a TV. Well, that would have been paradise compared to the prison Paul was in. Uh, Yet we never hear a complaint from Paul. We hear him writing letters of encouragement. We know that he shared the gospel with those who were overseers in the prison. Paul understood as well as anybody who ever lived the sovereignty of God. And I believe that Paul saw his imprisonment in Rome, not so much as being a prisoner of Rome, but as being a prisoner of the Lord. The Lord and his sovereignty had put Paul there for a reason, and Paul embraced that. He trusted the will of God completely. Yet, we'll complain because what traffic is bad, we complain because we feel service at a restaurant, hasn't been stellar. We'll complain about having to drive an outdated car, and on and on. Everybody has their own list that they can make up about things we complain about, and it's endless. So I'll tell you a personal anecdote from my life, because um, I was thinking about this. What causes me to complain, and I can tell you it's not the big stuff. So 2004, December, I visited the doctor, heard the word, nobody wants to hear, cancer, and spent you know 2005, half of it going through chemotherapy and radiation. I don't ever remember complaining. Uh, When I think back on that, I don't—I just don't think I did. When when I heard that I had cancer, I never shook my fist at God and said, "Why me?" I thought, "Why not me?" I live in a fallen world and a fallen body that's susceptible to everything that can happen to a body, you know. So I didn't think it was, you know, beneath me to have it. And I don't remember thinking, even going through chemotherapy, which is pretty rough. Some some of us have done that, um, complaining about it. What I remember thinking is, I'm glad these physicians who live ten minutes from my house. Know how to fix this. So, having said that, I, but I look at my own life. It's not the big things. It's the little things. It's the daily things, where I think this uh, propensity to complain kind of sneaks its way into your life. And so, for me anyway, I have to really look at the at the little things, at the daily things. Um, you know, complaining really does a number on our daily lives as Christ followers. Hebrews twelve one says this... Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us... Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us... And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us... So, when we burden our lives with complaining and grumbling... We've taken our eyes off the prize, off finishing the race that's set before us... And these verses talk about the sin which so easily entangles us. So we can all probably legitimately say, I'm not entangled with the temptation to murder, to steal, whatever the big sins are that we can name. And we can make ourselves feel pretty saintly as far as that goes. The Bible, however, is really clear about complaining that it is a sin. And we're very susceptible to being entangled by it. I am. It weighs us down from successfully running the race. And besides the spiritual damage that complaining and grumbling does to us, personally, think of what it does to those around us. Um, this, not this Christmas, but last Christmas, somebody gave me an instant pot for Christmas. Um, and after overcoming being completely overwhelmed by the instruction book, I started to use it. So if you have one, you know the instruction book is daunting. And now I use it routinely. And if you use one, you know at the end of the cooking process, you flip the little valve on top and... It depressurizes, and it's kind of cool and noisy, and it makes the house smell good with, you know, whatever's cooking. I made pot roast last night, and the house smelled really good. Well, I was thinking about that. You know, sometimes we convince ourselves that we have a right to vent. I've heard this many times, and i I probably said it. You know, sorry, I'm just venting. Um, Venting is like this instant pot release, though, you know, except it's not pleasant. It's not the pleasant smell of pot roast. It's the foul smell of whatever is pent up inside someone who has a festering, complaining heart. And we spew this out into the air among people who likely never agreed to be the dumping ground you know, for our kind of rancid complaints. That's just a fact. So where do we get the right? Where do we think we get the right to do that? Well, you know, we've made the point, I think, that complaining is a universal spiritual problem and that God hates it, and it will interfere in our relationship with God, and also it will interfere in our relationships with those around us. So what do we do? I mean, I ask the question, is it even possible to not complain? You know, it's not enough to just stop complaining. There's more to it than that. If we just stop verbalizing words of complaint, but nothing changes inside, we, we, we stay like that instant pot, and eventually we just explode. So if a liar stops lying... That doesn't mean he's no longer a liar. A liar is no longer a liar when he begins to tell the truth. And I think that's kind of a hint, probably a clue, to what it takes to overcome complaining. You know, we can't just commit to no longer speaking words of complaint. We have to commit to speaking words of thankfulness. We have to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Uh, we can look at Jesus as an example for this. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42, he says, Jesus says, Father, not my will. But yours be done. So he knew the cross was in front of him. He knew that was his father's will, yet he simply never complained. He was a worshiper and not a complainer. The um, heart of gratitude, it's not dependent on how much money or possessions we have, how much praise we receive for a job well done at work, or even whatever kind of unexpected report we might get at a doctor's visit. Thanklessness and complaining, on the other hand, they're the same. thanklessness and complaining. They reflect what's in our heart and their sin. They're the result of simply not remembering what God has done for us. And this spiritual forgetfulness is a deadly disease, I think. It threatens our faith and joy more than any cancer ever could. It penetrates to the core and causes a rot from within. So how do we guard against this? We remember. We remember God's gracious deliverance and redemption. We fix this in our memories. Like David did over and over and over in the Psalms. You know, hardly ever at the end of any of his Psalms was the problem that David was facing resolved. The Psalms always end with the problem, not resolved. But what was resolved in David's heart anyway was that he knew who Yahweh was and is and will be and he he rested completely in that. And that's what the story of the Psalms is from David's perspective. This is where the Israelites missed it completely. And remember... When we're talking about the Israelites, we're talking about us. So God had provided manna, which had every nutrient they needed. God had provided water at every point that they needed it. God had provided meat when they, when they asked for it. He'd provided victory over their enemies. He had taken up residence among them where they could see him. He provided all, everything they needed. But they seemed to have had spiritual amnesia. And this can happen to us too. We have to actively make every effort to recall and remember All that God has amazingly and graciously done for us, beginning with our salvation. So if you're a Christ follower, remember that you, a sinner who was an enemy of God, are now his child and he loves you, he knows you, he keeps you. So we should always remember that God knows what he's doing. Again, the Old Testament stories are written as examples for us. Joseph, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, forgotten by a friend who said he would help him yet it's never recorded in the bible that he complained what was his secret we're not going to read it but in genesis 45 joseph says three times in that chapter god sent me here joseph grasped the truth that god is in control and that he knows what he's doing and we have to remember this sometimes life isn't good the bible never says it will be uh, always good the bible never pretends that life is without problems But the Bible does say this in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So complaining is the fruit of a thankless heart. Sometimes our circumstances can cause us to question God and to miss the bigger picture of his goodness. At those times, we have to remember what he's done, what he's going to do, and to give thanks. You know, words spent on complaining are wasted energy that could be spent on talking to God, Praying, thanking him, praising him, asking him questions, asking for his guidance. Complaining causes us to forget the overwhelming goodness of God. We focus on not having the meat and forget to be thankful that we have the manna, right? And we challenge God about the deserts in our lives and forget to remember the parting of the Red Sea. So, you know, now's the time for making New Year's resolutions. That's become a cliche, a joke. Millions of resolutions are made, none of them are kept. So when studying for this, I kind of challenged myself to go a day without a single word of complaint. And more or less, I did that. I mean, I think it's a possibility. You know, I don't think I've overcome it completely. But when I wake up in the morning, I try to immediately say a word of thanksgiving to God. And now I'm noticing it's become a habit. Um, I notice that I'm catching myself when I start to complain. Unfortunately, sometimes it's in the midst of a complaint that I catch myself. But I see that I'm catching myself. Um, but what I see is that if we give the Holy Spirit the slightest opportunity to do something in our lives, he'll do it. He's waiting to do that for us. And I want to challenge you to do the same. You know, just resolve to enter 2019 not as a complainer, but as a thankful worshiper of a God who, according to John 3:16, loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If we fill our hearts with thanksgiving and praise, and this must be intentional and active, then there's simply no room for complaining, and grumbling. So I, I was invited by Mike Hale to give this talk to the youth a couple of several weeks ago, and jokingly at the end of that, I said, "You know, it would be really cool if somebody invented an app that would send you a message each day to be thankful and full of praise." And then I hear this morning we have that app. I mean, I think this is awesome. I think we need that prompt in the morning, once a day, start the day with praise, be thankful, don't complain. It's not gonna. It's 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 what God wants from us. And I think if we make an, a, a concerted a, just if we just tell the Holy Spirit, I can't do this, but I want you to do it for me, He'll do it. Let's pray.